Section 2 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 1, Part 2. When it was ascertained, by the means of Lord Kensington, that the marriage would be agreeable to both royal families, and that the religious prejudices of neither were strong enough to prevent it, James I sent over an ambassador extraordinary, in the foppish person of one of his favorites, Hay, Earl of Carlisle, a courtier chiefly distinguished for his ingenuity in hanging forty thousand pounds worth of finery on his dress. Carlisle being a mere state puppet, the diplomatic part of the marriage treaty was still carried on by the agreeable and elegant Kensington, who was now ostensibly joined with him in the mission. When Marie de Medicis and her daughter gave audience to the English ambassadors, letters and a portrait of Charles were offered by them, in form to the princess, who, turning to her mother, requested permission to receive them. Leave being granted by the queen mother, Henriette took the portrait she had so earnestly desired to possess, and according to the testimony of the ambassadors, read the letter of the prince with tears of joy, and when she had perused it twice, put it in her bosom, and placed the epistle of the king, his father, in her cabinet. When James I read this account, he said in a jocose manner, The young princess means, by this proceeding, to intimate that she will trust me and love my son, yet I ought to declare war on her, because she would not read my letter without her mother's consent, but I suppose I must not only forgive her, but thank her, for lodging Charles's letter so well. In return, a beautiful miniature of the princess was sent to Charles, who was transported at the contemplation of those charms, which, though at present in the bud, when fully developed, rendered her renowned as one of the loveliest queens in history. The only fault that could be found in the person of Henriette, at fifteen, was that she was diminutive in stature. But as our contemporary memoir states, the wooing ambassador assured the king and prince that the princess Christine, her sister, was not taller at her age, and was at present grown into a very tall and goodly woman. Lord Kensington requested the Queen Mother to authorize a private interview between the princess and him, because he had a message from his prince, which he wished to deliver in person. The Queen Mother, perhaps for the purpose of eliciting a lively dialogue with the handsome ambassador, appeared to demur as to whether the interview ought to be granted. She would, writes Lord Kensington, needs know what I meant to say to her daughter. Nay, then, quoth I, smiling, your majesty would needs impose on me a harder law than they in Spain did on his highness. Alluding to the visit, the prince made to court the Spanish infanta. But the case is now different, said Marie de Medicis, for the prince was in person there. Here you are but his deputy. Yet a deputy, answered I, who represents his person. For all that, returned the queen, what is it you would say to my daughter? Nothing, I answered, that is not fitting the ears of so virtuous a princess. But what is it? reiterated the queen mother. Why then, madam, quoth I, if you will needs know, it shall be much to this effect, that your majesty having given me liberty of freer language than heretofore, I obey my prince's command in presenting to your fair and royal daughter his service, not now out of mere compliment, 
but prompted by passion and affection, which both her outward and her inner beauties have so kindled in him, that he was resolved to contribute the uttermost he could to the alliance in question, and would think success therein the greatest happiness in the world. Such, with some little more amorous language, was to be my communication with her highness. Allay, allay, smilingly exclaimed the queen mother of France. There is no great danger in that. Je me fie en vous, she continued. I will trust you. Neither did I abuse her trust, continues the elegant ambassador, for I varied not much from what I said in my interview with Madame Henriette, save that I amplified it a little more. She drank it in with joy, and with a low curtsy, made her acknowledgments, adding that she was extremely obliged to my prince, and would think herself happy in the occasion that would be presented of meriting a place in the affections of his good grace. The flattering courtier had previously informed Charles that his reputation as the completest prince in Europe in manners and person has certainly raised in the heart of the sweet princess, Madame Henriette, an infinite affection. Notwithstanding this propitious commencement, difficulties, which appeared almost insurmountable, beset the arrangement of every article of the marriage treaty. It even seemed impracticable to agree on a marriage ceremony, which should be considered legal and binding, both by the Protestants and Catholics. Pope Urban was extremely averse to the union, which he predicted would be a disastrous one, and the most dangerous step that his young goddaughter could take. The opinion of the pontiff was founded on his knowledge of the temper of the English people, derived from the information of the seminary priests, actively employed on proselytizing missions. He rightly anticipated that if the royal family of Stuart relaxed the bloody penal laws against the Catholics, that their people would not suffer them to reign long. If, on the other hand, King James or his son continued those persecutions, how could the princess enjoy one moment's happiness in her wedlock? Thus arguing, Pope Urban Barberini delayed the dispensation in hopes of frustrating the marriage of Charles and Henriette. The Queen Mother of France was, however, determined to expedite the marriage, whether Pope Urban approved or not. After great debate, the English procurators agreed that the princess and her attendants, with their families and followers, should enjoy the free exercise of their religion in England. To this end, she should be provided with chapels, oratories, and chaplains, in the same manner and with the same privileges as those conceded to the Infanta, that her portion should be 800,000 crowns, one moiety to be paid on the day preceding the marriage, the other within 12 months afterwards, and that she should, for herself and her descendants, solemnly renounce all claim of succession to the French crown. A clause, fraught with evil consequences to both countries, and with ruin to the house of Stuart, was inserted. This was, that all the children of Henriette should be brought up under her care till their thirteenth year, thus giving to the Catholic mother the opportunity of infusing into their infant minds a bias towards the faith she professed. It is often asserted in history that by the marriage articles, the children of this union were to be brought up Catholics till their thirteenth year. This was not expressed, but all reasoning persons will agree that facilities were allowed for it. This clause was broken by Charles I, but of course considered valid by his queen, whenever she had an opportunity. The treaty was solemnly ratified December 12, 1624. 
one of the marriage articles secretly stipulated for a relaxation of the persecution against the Catholics, and in proof that King James meant to observe his promise, he issued instructions, ordering all persons imprisoned for religion to be released, and all fines levied on Catholic recusants to be returned. Likewise, commanding all judges and magistrates to stop the executions of papists convicted under the penal laws. From this moment may be dated the origin of the direful dissensions between the English parliaments and the Stuart monarchs. Pope Urban still delayed delivering his dispensation for Henriette's marriage. He required that the toleration on which James had acted should be confirmed publicly, and he forbade his nuncio at Paris to deliver his brevi of dispensation till this article was ratified. King James died before the nuncio, Spada, delivered the brevi of dispensation to the Queen Mother of France, and the royal betrothed of Henriette, ascended the throne of Great Britain under the title of Charles I. He immediately renewed the marriage treaty on his own authority. Pope Urban's reluctance to grant his dispensation greatly displeased the Queen Mother of France, who resolved to follow the precedent of the marriage of Margaret of Valois and Henry of Navarre, and celebrate the marriage without the license of Rome. When Pope Urban found that such was the case, he ordered Spada to deliver the brevi to the French ministers. Yet Urban, says one of the Barberini manuscripts, still presaged misery to this marriage. After delaying the brevi as long as possible, he only granted it to avoid the greater scandal of the princess being wedded without the papal benediction. The Duc de Chevreuse, a prince of the House of Guise, and, through the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots, a near kinsman of Charles I, on that account was appointed to represent his person and give his hand by proxy to Henriette. The ancient custom of marrying at the church door was revived on this occasion. The formula drawn up at Rome for the direction of the Infanta's wedlock with Charles was observed. This ordained that the bride, as soon as the ceremony was over, should enter the cathedral and assist at the mass. Meantime, the English prince should, on the threshold of the cathedral, recognize her as his wife, according to the rites of the Catholic Church, and with the authority and benediction of the whole pontificate. It was noticed, as a point of delicacy in the conduct of the Duc de Chevreuse, that, although a zealous Catholic, when he represented the person of Charles I, his kinsman, he made no more religious concessions than if he had really been a Protestant. He withdrew from the Mass and joined the two English ambassadors, who were waiting apart, ready to take their proper places in the bridal procession from Notre Dame. This ceremony took place May 21st, 1625. Scarcely was the marriage over at the door of Notre Dame, when the Duke of Buckingham arrived, quite unexpectedly, with the splendid train of English nobles, in order to escort the young Queen of England home. The whole court and royal family of France prepared to accompany the bride of Charles I in magnificent progress, to the coast opposite to England, during which they were to be entertained with all the pageantry ingenuity could devise. These diversions, suited as they were to the semi-barbarous magnates of the Middle Ages, who, fierce as they might be, were in intellect like grown-up children, had begun to be tedious in an age which had produced Sully, Bacon, and Shakespeare. The only pageant of historical interest was one in which the young queen was greeted by representatives of all the French princesses that had ever worn the English crown. 
They certainly formed a group distinguished by calamity. One was wanting to complete the tableau of beauty and sorrow, and that one, when she took her place on the historic page, is found to be Henriette. The young king of France was attacked with an illness so violent that he was forced to give up his intended journey to the coast. The queen mother, Marie de Medicis, was struck with a dangerous malady on the route to Campania, which seems to have occasioned a delay in the arrival of the young queen in England, who was detained by the alarming illness of her mother a whole fortnight in Amiens. Different reports were circulated, assigning secret reasons of this delay. The Puritan party invented one which has taken its place in history. This was that the Pope had imposed a fortnight's penance on Henriette, to punish her for wedding a heretic king. The dangerous illness of her mother was the simple, and therefore, the more probable cause. At length, the queen mother was convalescent in health, and had acquired sufficient firmness of mind to take leave, as she thought forever of her favorite child. As she bade her farewell, she placed in her hand the following letter, the composition of which had been the occupation of her sick chamber. The queen mother, Marie de Medicis, to the young queen of England, Henriette Marie. 1625, June 25th. My daughter, you separate from me, I cannot separate myself from you. I retain you in heart and memory, and would that this paper could serve for an eternal memorial to you of what I am. It would then supply my place and speak for me to you when I can no longer speak for myself. I give it you with my last adieu in quitting you, to impress it the more on your mind, and give it to you written with my own hand, in order that it may be the more dear to you, and that it may have more authority with you, in all that regards your conduct towards God, the king, your husband, his subjects, your domestics, and yourself. I tell you here sincerely, as in the last hour of our converse, all I should say to you in the last hour of my existence, if you should be near me then. I consider to my great regret, that such can never be, and that the separation now taking place between you and me for a long time is too probably an anticipation of that which is to be forever in this world. On this earth you have only God for a father, but as he is eternal, you can never lose him. It is he who sustains your existence and life. It is he who has given you to a great king. It is he who, at this time, places a crown on your brow, and will establish you in England, where you ought to believe that he requires your service, and there he means to effect your salvation. Remember, my child, every day of your life, that he is your God, who has put you on earth, intending you for heaven, who has created you for himself and for his glory. The late king your father has already passed away. There remains no more of him, but a little dust and ashes, hidden from our eyes. One of your brothers has already been taken from us, even in his infancy. God withdrew him at his own good pleasure. He has retained you in the world in order to load you with his benefits. But as he has given you the utmost felicity, it behoves you to render him the utmost gratitude. It is but just that your duties are augmented in proportion as the benefits and favors you receive are signal. Take heed of abusing them. Think well that the grandeur, goodness, and justice of God are infinite, and employ all the strength of your mind in adoring his supreme pusillance, in loving his inviolable goodness, and fear his rigorous equity, which will make all responsible who are unworthy of his benefits. 
receive my child these instructions of my lips begin and finish every day in your oratory with good thoughts and in your prayers ask resolution to conduct your life according to the laws of god and not according to the vanities of this world which is for all of us but a moment in which we are suspended over eternity which we shall pass either in the paradise of god or in hell with the malign spirits who work evil remember that you are daughter of the church by baptism and that this indeed the first and highest rank which you have or ever will have since it is this which will give you entrance into heaven your other dignities coming as they do from the earth will not go farther than the earth but those which you derive from heaven will ascend again to their source and carry you with them there render thanks to heaven each day to god who has made you a christian estimate this first of benefits as it deserves and consider all that you owe to the labors and precious blood of jesus our savior it ought to be paid for by our sufferings and even by our blood if he requires it offer your soul and your life to him who has created you by his pusillance and redeemed you by his goodness and mercy pray to him and pray incessantly to preserve you by the inestimable gift of his grace and that it may please him that you sooner lose your life than renounce him you are the descendant of saint louis i would recall to you in this my last adieu the same instruction that he received from his mother queen blanche who said to him often that she would rather see him die than to live as to offend god in whom we move and who is the end of our being it was with such precepts that he commenced his holy career it was this that rendered him worthy of employing his life and reign for the good of the faith and the exaltation of the church be after his example firm and zealous for religion which you have been taught for the defense of which he your royal and holy ancestor exposed his life and died faithful to him among the infidels never listen to or suffer to be said in your presence ought in contradiction to your belief in god and in his only son your lord and redeemer i entreat the holy virgin whose name you bear to deign to be the mother of your soul and in honor of her who is mother of our lord and saviour i bid you adieu again and many times i now devote you to god for ever and ever it is what i desire for you from the very depth of my heart your very good and affectionate mother maria from Amiens, the 10th of June, 1625. The maternal tenderness and even the sublime moral truths which occur in this elegant letter ought not to mislead the judgment from the fact that the spirit of the concluding section was a very dangerous one to instill into the mind of the inexperienced young girl who was about to undertake the station of queen consort in a country where the established religion differed from her own. It was calculated to exaggerate and inflame those differences, for wherever the word Christian occurs, Roman Catholic is exclusively meant, and the Queen Mother evidently wishes to imply that in any country where the host was not worshipped, the deity of Christ was blasphemed, and that her daughter was going among people whose creed was similar to Deists or Jews. Part of the letter evidently urges the young queen to enter England as if she were a missionary from the propaganda about to encounter the danger of martyrdom, and a comparison is drawn, in most elegant language, between Henriette and the English, and her ancestor St. Louis and the heathens, and instead of inculcating a wise and peaceful tolerance, 
the utmost zeal of proselytism is excited in a young and ardent mind. To this letter may be attributed the fatal course taken by the young queen in England, which aggravated her husband's already difficult position as the king of three kingdoms, each professing a different faith. The original plan of the progress of the bride to England was by way of Calais, but she was obliged to embark at Boulogne, because Calais was infected with the plague. At Boulogne, another detention occurred, owing to the whims of the Duke of Buckingham, who, having previously amazed the French court by the extravagances of his insolent passion for the beautiful young queen of France and of Austria, took it into his head that he would see her once more. Buckingham pretended that he had received dispatches of great importance from his court and rushed back to Amiens, where the young consort of Louis XIII remained with the queen mother and conducted himself there with unparalleled absurdity. The young queen of England took no little affront at being detained, while her escort was amusing himself with these freaks. Charles I, meantime, had traveled to Dover, where he was waiting impatiently the arrival of his queen, instead of which he received intelligence of her mother's dangerous illness and her wish for a few days' delay, which he granted courteously, and requested that she would not come till she could feel perfectly at ease in her mind. During this interval, the king retired to Canterbury. The discharge of ordnance from the opposite shores of France announced the embarkation of the royal bride, June 23rd. After a stormy passage, she arrived before Dover on Sunday evening at seven o'clock, where she stepped from her boat on an artificial bridge the king had ordered to be constructed on purpose for her accommodation. Charles was then at Canterbury, where he remained out of point of delicacy that the queen might be somewhat recovered from the fatigues of her voyage before the agitating circumstance of a first introduction took place between them. A gentleman of the royal household, one Mr. Turwitt, brought the tidings of the queen's arrival to Charles I with extraordinary speed. It is said he was but 36 minutes riding from Dover to Canterbury. The king came to Dover Castle to meet his queen at 10 o'clock the following morning. His arrival was unexpected. She was at breakfast. She rose hastily from the table, although he wished to wait for the conclusion of the meal. The royal bride hasted down a pair of stairs to meet the king, and then offered to kneel and kiss his hand, but he wrapped her up in his arms with many kisses. The set speech that the princess had studied to greet the royal stranger, whom she had to acknowledge as her lord and master, was, Sire, je suis venu en ce pays de votre majesté pour entrer commandé de vous. Sire, I am come into this, your majesty's country, to be at your command. But the firmness of the poor princess failed her. She finished the sentence with a gush of tears, and very natural it was that they should flow. The sight of her distress called forth all the kindness of the heart of Charles. He led her apart. He kissed off her tears, protesting that he should do so till she left off weeping. He soothed her with words of manly tenderness, telling her that she was not fallen into the hands of enemies and strangers, as she tremblingly apprehended, but according to the wise disposal of God, whose will it was that she should leave her kindred and cleave to her spouse, adding, that he would no longer master himself than while he was a servant to her. This mingled softness and gallantry reassured the weeping girl. Her dark eyes brightened anew, and she soon fell into familiar discourse with the royal lover. 
In the course of conversation, he seemed surprised that she appeared so much taller than she had been represented to him, for finding she reached to his shoulder, he glanced downward at her feet to see whether her height had not been increased by artificial means. With her natural quickness of perception, she anticipated his thoughts, and showing him the shoes she wore, she said to him in French, Sire, I stand upon my own feet. I have no help from art. Thus high am I, neither higher nor lower. At the conclusion of this interview, the young queen presented all her French servants to his majesty, recommending them to him particularly by name. Madame St. George, the daughter of Madame de Monglat, the queen's governess, was the principal of her ladies, and to her, King Charles took a very early antipathy. That beautiful coquette, the Duchess de Chevreuse, was of the party, but she seems to have arrived in the quality of guest. She was the wife of the king's cousin, the Duc de Chevreuse, who had represented his royal person by proxy at the recent marriage ceremony, and completed his trust by escorting the royal bride to England. The absence of Madame de Chevreuse from Paris was, in fact, a species of banishment inflicted on her as penance for some of the vagaries with which, from the pure love of mischief, she had been bewildering all the heads and hearts she could captivate at the French court. Nor did she lack English admirers, for the wooing ambassador, Lord Kensington, was passionately in love with her. Charles I received the Duc de Chevreuse graciously and treated him as a kinsman. He conducted him himself to the presence chamber in Dover Castle, where he found the fair Duchess of Chevreuse and bade her welcome. The royal party left over the same eventful day that saw the king introduced to his queen. On the road to Canterbury, the royal party passed Barham Downs, where there were pavilions and a banquet prepared, and all the English ladies of the queen's household were waiting to be presented to their royal mistress. The king assisted her to alight from her carriage, and on the green sod that June morning, the royal bride held her first court and was introduced to her English ladies. At Canterbury, a magnificent feast awaited them, at which Charles served his beautiful bride at table, performing the office of carver to her with his own royal hands. The queen, that she might not refuse the viands he offered her, ate both of the pheasant and venison he laid on her plate, although her confessor stood by her, and reminded her it was a fast, being the vigil of St. John the Baptist, and entreated her not to give cause of scandal, by eating forbidden food in a strange land, at her first arrival. But the young queen, either determined to conciliate her new subjects, or being very hungry from her journey, paid no heed to these injunctions, but ate without scruple, the meat the king had carved for her. The same evening, the 24th of June, it is asserted that Charles and Henriette were personally married at Canterbury. The ceremony took place in the great hall of that ancient city, where they sojourned till the 26th of June. Charles I chose to enter his metropolis by the old state highway of the River Thames, and for this purpose took the ancient route from Canterbury to Gravesend. Ostensibly he wished to show his bride that magnificent navy, which was always the pride of the Stuart sovereigns, but the chief motive was to avoid passing through the narrow and infected streets of the city of London, then reeking with the plague. At Gravesend, the royal bride was escorted to a state barge by the king. Hundreds of beautiful barges, belonging to the nobility and merchants of London, floated around ready to fall into the royal procession, which was greeted by the thundering salutes of the noble navy, 
riding at anchor near Gravesend. Newspapers were then in their infancy. Their places were supplied by newsletters, which were manuscript epistles written by professed intelligencers to the different nobles distant from court who could afford to treat themselves with such luxuries. Some of these letters are extant and contain minute particulars of the Queen's progress to London from her embarkation. Yesterday, betwixt Gravesend and London, our Queen had a beautiful and stately view of that part of our navy, which is ready to sail, which gave her a volley of 1,500 shot. And indeed it required firm nerves to stand a royal salute in those days, for all the guns fired were shotted, and some awkward accidents happened now and then, in consequence. At five o'clock, in a warm, thundering June afternoon, the Queen drew near the metropolis, a heavy shower was falling at the time, but thousands of boats and ornamental vessels followed or surrounded her royal barge. Fifty good ships discharged their ordnance as the gay floating pageant passed up the river, and last of all, the tower guns opened such a peal as, I think, the queen never heard the like. The king and queen were both in green dresses. Their barge windows, notwithstanding the vehemence of the shower, were open, and all the people shouting amain. The queen put out her hand and shaked it to them. She has already given some good signs of hope that she may, ere long, by God's blessing, become ours in religion. One of these signs was the rather doubtful one of eating the wing of a pheasant on the vigil of St. John the Baptist, and another, more hopeful, in the answer she made to one of her English attendants, who venturing to ask, if her majesty could endure a Huguenot. Why not? replied the queen. Was not my father one? It had been well for her majesty if she had remembered whose daughter she was more frequently, but this speech, uttered some time in the course of her progress to the metropolis, comprehends the whole of the religious tolerance she was ever known to practice, though the utmost moderation was required from her, both as a wife and queen, professing a different religion from her husband and his people. The royal barge, after shooting London Bridge, made direct for Somerset House, the Queen's Dower Palace, before the procession arrived there, an accident happened which caused great alarm. The banks of the river were literally lined with spectators, who stood on barges, lighters, and ships' hulls. One of these vessels capsized for want of ballast, and immersed above a hundred persons in the Thames. But the boats that were shooting about in all directions soon picked up the unfortunate sightseers, with no other damage than a thorough ducking. Public rejoicings for the Queen's entry prevailed throughout London. That evening, the bells rang till midnight, bonfires blazed on every side, and as much reveling was kept up as the plague-spitten state of the city would permit. Such, however, was the appalling pestilence which prevailed, that King Charles withdrew his young bride from it as soon as he had opened his parliament, at which she appeared, seated on a throne by his side. Soon after this splendid scene, the royal pair retired to Hampton Court, where they passed their first weeks of married life. The French ladies, who had accompanied the young queen from Paris, attended her thither, and formed some of the most brilliant ornaments of her circle. Apartments were assigned to the Duke and Duchess de Chevreuse at Richmond Palace which favor excited the jealousy of all the ambassadors of different courts then resident in England. King Charles replied that this favor was granted to them, not as ambassadors, but as relatives, and that it was occasioned by the anxiety his young queen felt 
on account of the situation of her cousin, Madame de Chevreuse. This celebrated lady afterwards gave birth to a daughter in England, but the queen's anxieties respecting her health were not much required, since in the course of the summer, among other freaks, she astonished the English court by her exploit of swimming over the Thames one hot evening, and obtained in consequence the surname of the female Leander. The queen's confessor, Father Sancy, very early gave offense to King Charles, who sent him back to France in course of six weeks, for officiously insisting on the performance, to the very letter, of every article in the queen's marriage contract, respecting the establishment of her Roman Catholic chapel. Afterwards, it was stated that this dismissal took place, because he had ordered her majesty a very extraordinary penance, of walking barefoot to the gallows at Tyburn, to pray for the souls of the persons executed, for participation in the gunpowder plot. St. James's Day, 1625, is the precise time pointed out for this strange exploit. The queen had then been only one month in England, of which time we can trace scarcely a day of her residence in London. Assuredly, the visits of the court to the metropolis must have been few and hurried in July, 1625. The statement was, nevertheless, formally made by the Privy Council, and most circumstantially denied on the part of the queen, as will be seen subsequently. The infected state of the metropolis deprived it of the presence of the court, and all the public rejoicings, concomitant to the new reign and royal marriage, were postponed till the summer heats had abated. The king and his bride remained principally at Hampton Court and Windsor till the winter, when they were established at Whitehall, and the queen began to hold her courts. The sweetness and urbanity with which the queen had at first captivated the hearts of her new subjects, ever and anon gave way before sallies of haughty and stormy fits of temper. Perhaps the earliest of these indications took place the first time she kept court at Whitehall, and was perceived by a bystander, Mr. Mordaunt, who wrote the following description of Her Majesty. The queen, howsoever little in stature, is of most charming countenance when pleased, but full of spirit, and seems to be of more than ordinary resolution. With one frown, divers of us, being at Whitehall to see her, she drove us all out of the chamber, the room being somewhat overheated with fire and company. I suppose none but a queen could have cast such a scowl. Our queen, wrote Sir Tobias Matthew, to the Duchess of Buckingham from Whitehall. Arrived here yesterday, and I was glad at the heart, to see her such as she hath seemed. She is more grown than I thought, being higher by half a head than my lady Marquess. Whatsoever they say, believe me, she sits already on the skirts of womanhood. Madam, upon my faith, she is a most sweet, lovely creature, and hath a countenance that opens a window into the heart, where man may see all nobleness and goodness, and I dare venture my head on the little skill I have in physiognomy, that she will be extraordinarily beloved in this kingdom. Another contemporary has left a graphic portrait of the young queen at this time. We have now a most noble new queen of England, who in true beauty is much beyond the long-wooed infanta. The Spanish princess had fading flaxen hair, was big-hipped, and somewhat heavy-eyed. But this daughter of France, this youngest flower of the Bourbon, being but in her cradle when her sire, the great Henry, was put out of the world, is of a more lovely and lasting complexion, of a clear brown, with eyes that sparkle like stars. 
The pens of all writers were eloquent in praise of the brunette beauty of the queen, even before the pencil of Van Dyke had made it indisputable. She is black-eyed and brown-haired, declares another writer. In truth, a brave lady. A more finished and intellectual description of the queen has been preserved by her countrywoman, the accomplished Lafayette. At the epoch of her marriage, she had only attained middle height, but she was extremely well proportioned. Her complexion was perfectly beautiful, her face was long, her eyes large and black, now touchingly soft, now brilliant and sparkling, her hair black, her teeth fine, her forehead, nose and mouth, all somewhat large, but well formed, her air spirituelle, with an extreme delicacy of features, and an expression grand and noble throughout her whole person. Of all the princesses of her family, she most resembles her great father. Like him, she has true greatness of mind, full of tenderness and charity, of a sweet and agreeable temper, entering into the griefs of others, and willing to alleviate all the sorrow in the world. Charles I loved her with passion, and well she reciprocated this tenderness, as he found in the hour of peril and misfortune. This picture is, perhaps, sketched with too partial a hand. The writer evidently loved the original, yet the power of inspiring gratuitous love, which endures through changing fortune, is one proof that the fine traits here drawn were not altogether fictitious. However, if we are guided entirely by the conclusions drawn from facts, the young queen must be considered at this time as a lovely and vivacious child, somewhat spoiled by her mother and her flattering female court. End of section 2